The John Morris Show, episode 63. 7, 6, 5, 4, 3, 2, 1. You'll never have the sacred stone. <laughs> oh, this new crazy mother... You are now listening to The John Morris Show. My name is John Morris, Army veteran turned freelance web developer. And each week I bring you a fresh look into the latest news, advice, and next steps for the self-made web designer and developer to help you reach your dream of coding for a living faster. Thanks for giving me some of your time today. Now, let the episode begin. Today's episode is brought to you by the Complete Web Developer Course by Rob Percival on Udemy.com, where you can learn HTML, CSS, JavaScript, PHP, MySQL, WordPress, mobile apps, and more inside one convenient course so you can shortcut the time it takes to start earning your full-time income as a web developer. John Morris Show listeners can get an exclusive 85% discount on the course by visiting johnmorrisonline.com slash cwdc. That's johnmorrisonline.com slash cwdc. Hey everybody, welcome back to the John Morris Show. I'm your host, John Morris. Have a great show for you today. Got a number of things coming up. We're going to be talking about iTunes upgrading its podcast experience and what that means for you as a web developer. I'm going to be talking a little bit about being persistent and some things that have happened to me here just recently that kind of underscore the value of being persistent. And Also, where do I start with my PHP application? This is something, a question I've been getting quite a bit lately, actually. And so I want to give you some tips for, you know, getting over just the, what I call the blank page syndrome, staring at the computer screen and not being sure what to do. This is something that it's developers, it's writers, it's artists, we all deal with. And there's some things that you can do to get around that. So we're going to go into that. Being, at least here in the States, getting close to tax time. I'm kind of starting to get all my stuff together. I want to give you some tax tips for freelancers because there are some things, some hard lessons that I've learned from my experience being a freelancer when it comes to taxes. And so I want to share some of that with you. And then, of course, as always, we'll get into our Q&A. So that's what's coming up in the show. If you haven't yet, be sure to subscribe to the show so that you don't miss an episode. You can do so over on iTunes at johnmorrisonline.com slash iTunes. If you're on Android, johnmorrisonline.com slash SoundCloud. You can find it there. Or, of course, if you're familiar with one of the RSS podcast readers, you can always use the RSS feed at johnmorrisonline.com slash feed, and you can put that into your RSS or your podcast reader. And then, of course, as always on YouTube, johnmorrisonline.com slash YouTube. Now, before I get into the show, you know, I've been kind of going back and forth some episodes. I have a little thing I want to talk about in the opening and some episodes I don't. Today I do. And this actually came up right before I was about to jump on. This was a comment that I got on YouTube. And I've seen this. I don't think this... I don't know if this is just some other freelancing site trying to put negative information out about this particular one because I've seen a very, very similar type thing that's been posted. Um, 
you know, before, but I don't know. So I'm going to address it because it keeps coming up and it's fairly annoying. And so here's what the comment said. It said, freelancer.com is a thief group. They have gotten and get, will get huge unearned income by limiting and suspending accounts of freelancers slash clients. According to, and this is kind of broken up as far as the English a little bit, so I'm just kind of trying to muddle through this. So this is paraphrasing a little bit, but it says, according to analysis in the recent month, freelancer.com limited about 2,000 freelancer slash client accounts and stole their balance fund of $100,000. Please secede from this dirty website ASAP if you don't want to lose your money. Now, I should preface all of what I'm about to say with the fact that I don't... I personally don't really believe that that actually happened. Okay. I I just, the, at least the way that it's said here, I, I don't believe that freelancer.com just closed these accounts and stole people's money. I don't believe that. Um, you know, if, if that's the case, then, you know, where's the evidence? Let's see the evidence, the actual evidence. And then if they did, then by all means, then it's something to be upset about. But I feel like this is more of a mindset thing. Uh, you know, these sites have rules, and by all means, they're, they're allowed to have their rules and the ways that, ways that they work. And you know, sometimes people break those rules, and these sites are in a very precarious position in that regard because ultimately, I've said this I don't know how many times before, that you as the freelancer are not their client. You're not the person that the site is built for. Even though it's called freelancer.com, you're not who it's built for. It's built for the client because the client is the one who's paying the money. And so they have to always, their focus is always making the marketplace better for the client. Because the better they make it for the client, the more clients will use that particular site and then that benefits obviously you as the freelancer as well and them as a company. So you know I I get that they put out a lot of rhetoric about how they're helping freelancers and this that and the other and that's all fine and well. You know that's that's good marketing etc but it's just not the case. The clients are the ones paying the money. That's who they care about. And they should. It's not there's nothing wrong with that. They should. So if you're doing anything that's borderline, they're not going to hesitate. They are not going to hesitate because they would rather lose one client or one freelancer than one client. The client is more important to them. So, uh, you know, seeing, hearing about accounts from freelancers getting suspended doesn't really, I mean, you're talking about a site. I don't know what the numbers are on freelancer.com, but it's in the millions Millions and millions and millions of freelancers. And there's 2,000 accounts that were closed. I mean, that's... <laughs> how many how many million joined in that month that the 2,000 accounts were closed? It doesn't seem like that much to me. Now, again, if somebody has hard numbers and they want to show me the hard numbers, they want to show proof, that's fine. But the reason I bring this up is it's this mindset that these... It's this whole mindset that somebody owes you something. Nobody owes you anything. They don't have to build the site. And so if you don't like the rules, don't join the site. 
They don't owe you anything. And the quicker you can get over that mentality that somebody owes you something, the further you're going to get. You have to go out and deserve it. Again, I don't mean this whole new age thing that we get into of, you know, oh, when you say you have to deserve it, everybody deserves a certain, you know, we're all special people, etc. It's not what I'm talking about. Right? I do I do think that human beings are capable of great things. I do believe that, you know, I have kids. I believe that my kids are special in a certain sense. But that doesn't mean that they're owed something. You have to actually work to deserve the things that you get. So this whole mentality, and you know, I'll admit that there's a larger political uh, impetus for me behind this with a lot of the things that are going on in uh, my country right now. So I'm mixing a little bit, but hey, it's my show. You know, I can do what I want to do. But the sooner you can get over the mentality that somebody owes you something, the further you're going to get. And this whole thing about you're owed this and you're owed that, and and these are the people that have to, you know, make sure and pay for it and fund it, it'll come crashing down at some point. It always does. It always has. So... Uh, and, and when it does, then then maybe that'll be the thing that, that makes people realize, okay, you know, I have to go out and actually earn what I get. All right, I'll end it there. I don't want to get too far down this, this path here, but uh, just a very dangerous mindset, I think, for, for, for you individually and in, in, in your success, regardless of your kind of political beliefs. All right, so like I said, Got a good show for you coming up. In the next segment, we're going to be diving into iTunes upgrading its podcast experience and why this is important and why you as a web developer should be paying attention to this. You're listening to John Morris Show on johnmorrisonline.com. Today's episode is brought to you by Ebates, where you can earn cash back on your online purchases from major retailers like Amazon, eBay, Walmart.com, and more. John Morris Show listeners can get your free account by visiting johnmorrisonline.com slash ebates. Welcome back to the John Morris Show, johnmorrisonline.com. In this segment, I'm going to be talking about iTunes upgrading its podcast experience. So what they've done is they've actually created a whole new kind of podcast section for podcasters. So it's uh, podcastconnect.apple.com. And what it allows you to do is any podcast that you've submitted. So if you're not familiar, the way it used to work is you would log, you would get it, go into iTunes. There's a little submit a podcast button. You would click that and it would have you fill out kind of some basic information, your email address, the RSS feed, etc. You'd submit that and that was it. That, that There was really nothing else there for you to do. You could submit the podcast and then if you needed any help with it, you essentially had to submit a support ticket through Apple and it would take, I mean, I, I did it a couple times and each time it took about two days for them to respond. And then I'd respond back and it'd be another two days. It was really kind of a, it wasn't a very great experience. And there was, there was nothing for you to log into or edit or any of that stuff. Well, they've changed that 
with this podcast connect. Now you can log in. And when you log in with your Apple ID, any of the podcasts that you've submitted with that email address will show up in there. And I went into mine and all three, I have three different podcasts that I run and all three of them showed up in there. We're already in there, which was pretty cool. And right now there's just some basic functionality. So this isn't a full robust thing yet, but one of the cool things is you can actually go in there and change your RSS feed URL, which is one of the things that before was so difficult to do. And you, you know, that was why I contacted Apple before was because I had changed the the RSS feed URL. So I'd have to contact them and so forth. Now you can actually just go in to the system and change it yourself, which makes it really handy. And there's some other basic things in there right now. I imagine with time, this is going to grow. And I think the reason that they've done this is because Google is now integrating podcasts into their play music system, and they already have this kind of basic experience in place. And so the competition from Google is forcing Apple to innovate, which I think is a great thing as a podcaster. It's going to just make the whole ecosystem better. Now, why should you care about this as a web developer? Well, you know, I harp on creating content all the time. I, you know, you've, if you've listened to the show for any amount of time, you've heard me say that time and time again. In fact, I talked about it just the last show. Someone asked me, how do I go about getting clients on a freelance side? I've bid on jobs. I'm not getting clients, etc." You don't rely solely on the freelance site. You don't rely solely on your service page being this awesome selling machine. You get out there and you start creating content and building trust and giving people results in advance. And you do that by creating content. Gary Vaynerchuk, you may have heard of him, a very, very well-known you know, online personality, I guess is the way to put it, blogger, uh, podcaster, YouTuber, social media guy, has built two $60 million plus businesses off the back of the internet. And the way he puts it is, if you're not creating content, you basically don't exist online. That it's a fundamental requirement to 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 even exist and play online that you be creating content. And then you have to be good at creating that content, create quality content, uh, have good sales funnels and so forth. So creating content, again, is a fundamental requirement. Now, why is that important with this whole podcasting thing? Well, podcasting until recently had been fairly small. There weren't a ton of people that were necessarily doing it. I remember it's probably a year or two ago, I went to a seminar, maybe even three years. And they said, uh, one of the expert, you know, kind of podcasting experts at the time was talking about how there were only about 200,000 podcasts that existed in the iTunes directory at that time. You know, you compare that to the millions upon millions upon millions of websites that exist it's still relatively small, but it's been growing. And to me, what it shows is that there's a permanent place for audio-only content. I was one of those people that just a few years ago thought, you know what, uh, audio is going to go the way of the birds now that we have video. Video is going to replace all of that stuff. But if you, if you di- dig into it a little bit more, you know, TV's been around for a while. and there's still plenty of radio shows out there. So it was probably a little premature to think 
that video is going to replace audio. And there are some distinct advantages to audio-only content, especially when you start thinking of a mobile context. And to be honest with you, there's times when I just, I don't want to watch, I don't need a video to watch. You know, I, I just want to hear what's being said. And there's a space for that. Now, not everything can be a podcast, but there's also not everything needs to be a video. And so I think it's a signal that there's a permanent place for audio that both Google is now putting it into their service and iTunes is upgrading their service. They've recognized that this is growing. So it's a, again, a signal that this is, this is kind of here to stay. And why I think that's big is because for a lot of people, it lowers the barrier to entry to get into creating content. You know, you can record in your quote unquote parents' basement and still produce an excellent show. It's not expensive to get into audio only. Video is a much higher barrier to entry because the quality that's expected from people has to reach a certain threshold. And in order to get that, you know, you have to you have to put in some money, you have to put in some time, and a lot of people just aren't uncomfortable in front of the of a camera. So it lowers the barrier entry for you to be able to start creating quality content, the content that you need to exist online, to attract clients and so forth. Now, I know that this works. As a matter of fact, I've had, I've had two qualified legitimate quote requests for me working on jobs within the last like four days as a result of all the content that I produce. I'm not on a freelance site doing that stuff anymore. I don't have to be, you know, I'm not, I don't necessarily have a super epic sales page selling my services. I just create a lot of content. And so people hear what I have to say. They trust what I have to say. And when they want something, they come to me to get hi- to, to hire me to do it. So this process works. And this whole idea of what iTunes is doing and and Google Play and and, and the whole kind of combination together is this signal that there's a permanent place for this. And if you're someone who doesn't like to write and isn't comfortable on video, there's still a place for you as a podcaster. You can still help people in advance as a podcaster and use that to bring people to your services and what you do. So, of course, that leads to what should now what as a result of knowing this what what should I start doing now how can I get started with this well first off start your show <laughs> if you haven't started your show start your show okay and because you want to get ahead of the wave and start building your audience while podcasting is still relatively small there's such an advantage to being a first mover uh, you can start to to kind of do land grabs essentially online and get a lot of that audience listening to you. And then as that'll help you, you know, rise in the rankings, that'll help you, you know, people know about you and talking about your show. And then as more and more people start listening to podcasts on a regular basis, you're being a much better position to capitalize on that. So, and you know, soon, the thing is soon, if not already, most shows will be available as a podcast. I believe I know there's a local radio show that's it's a local AM sports talk radio show and it's been ranked as one of the top 30 sports talk radio shows in the country 
and they have their own website where they they upload their podcast and everything, but they recently started putting them on SoundCloud, which is something that you know a lot of the traditional radio media you don't necessarily see, but even they kind of the old school curmudgeons are moving into the sphere as well. You want to be there before those people show up. Right? You want to you want to be there and have an audience before those people start showing up. Because when those people start showing up, A, they're going to they're going to take up a lot of that land, quote unquote, a lot of that audience out there, but they're also going to bring a lot of audience with them that can then find your show. So, the way to do this again, start your show and then just get on and give out useful content. You don't have to be perfect. If you've listened to my show long enough, you know I'm not perfect. You know there's stuff I say that either at the time or a month or two later, you're like, well, that was dumb. I, there's, there's plenty of stuff I know that I've said that I'm like, well, that was dumb. It happens. But keep what matters is the intent that you're trying to help people. And people will sense that. you know. And then, yeah, there's a little bit about talent in terms of actually having good stuff to talk about. But the only way to get good at it is to get out there and start doing it. So Start giving useful content and give it to your target market. So for example, if you build membership sites, give tech tips for building a membership site or tips for growing or marketing your membership site or getting traffic to your membership site or producing content for your membership site. Whatever it is that you do, create content that would attract people who would naturally want that particular service. And just keep be consistent over time. Consistency is probably the most important thing, more important than necessarily having super epic, high quality content is that you're consistent and that you have good intentions. So if you haven't yet, start your show and start giving out useful content to your target market. All right, coming up next, we're going to get into our uh, kind of approach mindset section. We're going to talk about being persistent, some stuff that happened recently with me related to you. If you're an email subscriber of mine, some statistics that really kind of stuck out to me and show the power of being persistent in everything that you do. So that's what's coming up in the next segment. You're listening to John Morris Show on johnmorrisonline.com. John Morris here for the complete web developer course by Rob Percival on udemy.com. Now here's the deal with this. Do you ever get frustrated constantly searching the internet for tutorials to learn how to code? Are you worried that learning how to code is taking longer than it should? Do you just wish you could learn everything in one convenient place so you can get on with earning your living as a web developer? Well, that is exactly why Rob created the Complete Web Developer Course. Everything you need to know, HTML, CSS, JavaScript, jQuery, PHP, MySQL, WordPress, APIs, and mobile apps in one convenient course. And you know it works because Rob has over 183,000 students and the most five-star ratings of any course on Udemy. Now here's the best part. John Morris Show listeners can get an exclusive, and this is just for you guys only, an exclusive 85% discount on the course simply by visiting johnmorrisonline.com cwdc. So look. Quit pulling your hair out trying to find good tutorials on the web. Do the smart thing and hit up my man Rob's complete web developer course with the slick 85% discount right now. Visit johnmorrisonline.com 
slash CWDC, and you'll be all set. Welcome back to the John Morris Show, johnmorrisonline.com. This segment, we're going to talk about being persistent as an approach to your career. And I want to talk about some stuff that's happened recently that may have involved you. If you're an email subscriber of mine, then you may have noticed this and kind of just keeps reminding me about the power of being persistent. I think being persistent in the pursuit of your goals, dreams, is the most important aspect. It's more important than talent. It's more important than leverage, although I think leverage is very important. It's more important than even want to or passion is the ability to be persistent. Now, I'm going to give you a small example of that. So you may have noticed if you're an email subscriber of mine, and if you're not, you should be, go over to johnmorrisonline.com and sign up to my email list to get exclusive emails from me and also get notified first when all of my podcasts and videos and so forth become available. But you may have noticed if you're on my email list that this last week I sent out two emails about last week's podcast. And the second email, I specifically targeted people who hadn't opened the first email. Now, for if, if you've never run a mailing list, getting people to open and read and click through on your email emails, I, that is, in, in reality, that is my business. I mean, everything that I do revolves so heavily around email and getting people to open them, getting people to read them, getting people to click them, getting people to, you know, get value from what I have to say. That is the name of the game. And it's really true for most businesses. As a matter of fact, the businesses that don't have a mailing list, there's a lot of people who would say they don't have a business. Because it is the lifeblood, especially online business, but really even these days, because of the way the internet has affected everything, even offline businesses. But it is the lifeblood of your business. So when I talk about, you know, it, how many more people open the email and read the email, it's not just a, an email. It's a big deal. This is my business. This is the core of what I do. So in doing that, I've now had, I basically doubled the amount of people who opened that email. Actually, more than doubled. So, the amount of people, had I not been persistent, had I not sent another email and say, hey, I really think you should open this and read this and listen to this uh, episode, I would have had half the amount of people actually open that email than before. And... I didn't quite double the amount of people that actually click through to listen to the podcast, but it's close and it's it's still going. And I think we'll come close to doubling that as well. So being persistent allowed me to double the amount of people who were exposed to 
the content that I created. And it was really, really simple to do. And obviously I have a, a software program that allows me to do that. But had I not been persistent, I would have missed out. But more importantly, they would have missed out. And I think that's that's the the mindset switch that we have to make. Now, the other part of this, and I'm going to get into that in a minute, but the other part of this is as a result of that second email, this was the most interesting part of it to me. Yes, more opens, more people reading it, more clicks, more people getting value, etc. But the amount of responses that I got on the second email was way, I mean, way more than double, probably four or five times the amount of responses that I normally get when I send out an email and that I've gotten gotten from really any other email that I've sent out. And it was people saying, thank you, appreciate it, you know, appreciate you following up, glad you sent it, et cetera, et cetera. Very, 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 very positive. I think I had one negative email that I got. Someone who, you know, was upset that I sent the second email. But far more people who were appreciative said thank you, etc. as a result of that second email. So, however you look at it, whether you're that hardcore business type that's concerned about the bottom line and the response that you're getting and the money that you're making and so forth. And I don't begrudge you at all. It's fine to think that way. If you're that person, this works. But even if you're the person who maybe doesn't think that way and you're more concerned about how many people can I help? What kind of impact can I have? How many people can I reach and and deliver value to? It still works. Being persistent still works. And so whether it's a client, a boss, a coworker, a customer, don't be afraid to be persistent. Because if you believe in what you do and that it's truly going to help people, push it hard. If you really believe that, that what you have to say, what you have to offer is of value to other people, that it's going to make their life better. Why wouldn't you sell that hard? And that's one of the mindset shifts that I think a lot of developers have to make. There's A lot of developers are so uptight about anything that comes across as salesy. But if you believe in what you have to offer and what you're selling, then you will sell it hard. You will push people. You will get in their face a little bit. It's like if you had a family member who had a disease and you knew that you had the cure, you were a hundred percent sure that if they just took it, that they would be better. Would you be worried about coming across as salesy or pushy? No. Would you be worried about their reaction if you got up in their face? No. Now, the trick to that, the key to all of this, is if you don't believe in what you do and that it's truly going to help people, then you need to fix that first. And there's a fine line here because there's a lot of developers who I've met, I've seen what they can do, who are fully capable of helping other people and should believe in themselves 
and what they're offering, but don't. And then, of course, there's the people who haven't got that far yet. But here's the thing. If you're that first group who doesn't believe that you're good yet, that doesn't believe that what you have to offer is of value, and you've been at this a while, the thing about it is it's not going to fix itself. It's not just going to happen one day. It takes you getting out there and seeing for yourself. And so that's why I recommend anybody I talk to, go take a client. Go get a freelance client. Do it for five bucks if you have to, but make it paid. Because as a result of that process, you'll know where you stand. And you need to know where you stand. Are you the person who is not yet good enough and you need to work more on your skill set? Or are you the person who is good enough but just doesn't know it? And once you find it out, boom, unleashed. Everything that you saw possible, everything that you wanted, you know, everything that you dreamed of having, you now realize you're good enough to go get it. And I can guarantee you when you reach that point, you're not going to have a problem being salesy, being pushy, and sell what you have to offer hard and being persistent. All right, I'll end that rant there. Coming up next, we're going to talk, where do I start my PHP application? How do I get over that blank page syndrome where I'm staring at a blank page and I just don't know where to start? How can I get over that? So we're going to talk about that coming up in the next section. You're listening to John Morris Show on johnmorrisonline.com. Hey, everybody. As you probably know, I constantly harp on using content to help you grow your audience and build your credibility as a web developer. But your web presence is nothing without a great hosting provider. So if you haven't yet, get your website up and running with a fast, reliable, and well-supported web host, Bluehost, for less than 6 bucks a month. You can check it out and get Bluehost's best price over at johnmorrisonline.com slash bluehost. Welcome back to the John Morris Show, johnmorrisonline.com. This segment, I'm going to talk about where do you start with your PHP application? Now, this stems from a question that I was asked again recently and I get asked quite often. And it's, hey, I know how to code. I've learned all the kind of the fundamental skills. And now I want to start building applications, but I'm just not sure where to start. I sit down at my computer and I start to think about building the application. I just don't know what to do. I don't know what the right formula is or if I'm building it the right way. And I think this is something that every developer goes through. This is a part, a normal part of the process because when you first start out, you know, usually it's, what should I learn? And then you kind of figure out, okay, these are the kind of core basic skills that I need to learn. So you start learning those and you, you're actually able to start building things and you feel kind of excited. But then you reach a point where you're like, okay, I want to get into building more sophisticated, professional applications. And I don't necessarily see a rhyme or rhythm to the way that people build theirs. They all kind of seem a little bit different. So 
Do I just build it differently every time? Do I create my own process? Or is there something I'm missing? And there is, I think, a general process that you can follow. The the, the answer is it's a little bit of both. Every developer does kind of have their own style, yet there are certain patterns and formulas that you can follow. Now, what's nice about what I'm going to show you here is that it'll help you avoid that blank page syndrome. You know, bloggers and artists and other kind of artistic people go through the same thing. You know, you could probably do a Google search now for like writer's block or blogger's block or whatever. And you would find a bunch of blog posts of people talking about this and relaying their experiences going through this. The problem or the reason that that happens is that they don't have a process. And oftentimes you'll find that the people who talk about this, the solution that they figured out is having a series of processes they can go to when they want to write different sorts of posts. I can tell you from my own experience, that's 100% true. I'm very process-oriented. I use a process for everything, for every podcast, for every email, for every sales page, for every video. I'm going through a process right now for this podcast. It's the process I use for every podcast that I do, and I follow a very set pattern for doing it. Now, that helps you get over the blank page syndrome because you don't have to guess about what that first step is. You don't have to come up with the approach out of whole cloth every time you do it. It's not dependent upon your mood. You can sit down and in just a few minutes have an outline for what you want and then, boom, move into it. And so it really helps streamline what you're doing. So having a process helps you or keeps you from getting stuck. The other part about it is when you have a process that you use over and over again, you get better at it. You know, the process I use now for this podcast isn't the one that I started with. And hopefully, and from my perspective, over time they've gotten incrementally better and better. In fact, I recently just made an upgrade to my podcast process that I'm hoping will help take it up another notch. Uh, So you can constantly improve and get better at it. So the answer to your question is having a process. Now, again, every developer has a little bit different way of doing it. So I'm going to share with you what I do. I'm not saying this is the perfect approach, but I found this approach over the years has helped me to have a starting place. Now, I'll, I'll tell you right up front, I'm very algorithmic in the way that I do this. I'm not very heuristic, meaning every time I sit down to do it, I, I tend to tweak it a little bit and mess with it a little bit. I don't just follow that exact pattern every single time. Uh, but I do have it in place. I do start to get into these steps. Uh, and then I kind of, you know, I kind of finagle and wiggle my way through it a little bit. And that's just me. Now, you may be someone who's very, very, very process-oriented, stick to it, and you follow that it that exact pattern every single time, and that's fine. 
for me, I'm always I'm always kind of thinking about upgrades and tweaks and how to make it better. So I'm always playing around a little bit. But I do still follow this general pattern. So the first thing, always 100% before anything else, I kind of just remind myself of this stuff. And it's some mindset stuff. And I think this stuff is so important. So the biggest mindset thing that I focus on is, and you may have heard this term, uh, NV, MVP or minimum viable product. So it's really, really easy to get caught up in everything that you want the application to do when you're thinking about it. It's often the bells and whistles that get us excited. But, you know, you have to remember that you need a, you need a viable product that, that completes or delivers on its core purpose. And so when I think of minimum viable product, I'm not talking about a junk product that just barely works. I'm talking about a framework that can scale, a a good solid foundation that can scale and performs the basic function necessary, whatever that is for the application. So that's the mindset that I take into it when I start an application. So that's the first thing. The second thing is then identifying that purpose what that minimum viability is. So what is the core purpose of the application? As I said, you don't want to get caught up in all the fancy things that you want it to do, all of the bells and whistles, because that can throw you off track. You have to remember to think about the end user and their basic expectations for the application. So if it's a messenger app, they're going to expect that it sends messages and receives messages and that that part of it works well. It's reliable. The interface is friendly, fun to use, easy to use, etc. That's the core thing that you should focus on is that core purpose because that's going to be your application or your users basic expectations of the application. Then on top of that, I do think in order for your application to take a place in your user's kind of overall life and the way they use, whether you're building a phone application, the internet, whatever it is, the way they use that, it should have a perspective. Meaning, you know, it should be based, it should be, if you're creating a messaging app, well, there's a hundred messaging apps out there. What makes yours different? What makes yours unique? Why write another messaging app? And it should be because you have some sort of opinion or perspective on the current state and a way that you can do it better. Now, the example that I would use that I think of is Mark Cuban's Cyberdust. Now, I'm not a part of the target market for that application. So I don't have the app, but I've read a lot about it because I find it interesting to me. And the application is essentially based around security and a lot of the stuff that we've seen going on, at least in the United States with the NSA and all that stuff. And it's about encrypting the messages and keeping them secure so it's only the two people sending them to each other can have access to them. That's a perspective. You may not agree with the perspective, but it's an opinion about the current state of messaging apps and his take and, and you know his 
his companies, his people's take on how to do it better or how to do it different. So your app should have some sort of perspective like that so that it has a unique appeal to the people who would install it. All right, so mindset, purpose. Next, then I look at what design pattern do I want to use? This is where you get into getting rid of that blank page syndrome. Because if you have a design pattern that you use over and over again, it really kind of lays out the steps in front of you. So you've probably heard of MVC, Model View Controller. So you know, okay, well, I got to build the model. I got to build all the views. I got to have the controller, etc. There's no question about how it goes together because there's kind of a basic framework for how you're supposed to do it. Now, you may not know that framework right now as of yet, but you can go and learn it and then start using it. And then you have a kind of a basic formula to follow and you get better at it and so forth. Another one that I kind of like, and this isn't nearly as popular, but it's kind of a tweak of MVC because as uh, the, the, the guy who kind of developed this, his name is Paul Jones. He said there's been kind of some semantic diffusion when it comes to MVC, meaning what MVC was originally intended for was something very, very specific. And what now it's kind of used for and when people talk about it, it is really kind of different. And it's not that it's not valuable, but it's not exactly what the original intent of it was. And so you're kind of taking a square peg into a round hole in a sense. And so he created this kind of new design pattern or outlined this new design pattern called Action Domain Responder or ADR, which he believes more closely represents what we actually do in the web development world. Because MVC... I'm going off the top of my head here, but it wasn't originally designed for web development, as I I remember. It was a very specific kind of software um, architecture or or category that it was designed for. And it's been kind of just molded, and people have used it for web development. But Action Domain Responder is one that he has kind of developed that he thinks fits with what we do better. Now I'll link to that on the show notes page, johnmorrisonline.com slash 63. I'll link to his, he has a whole kind of website and, and, and explanation of what it is and how to use it and so forth. I think it's really interesting, but whatever you decide, decide on a design pattern and then use that design pattern and use it over and over and over again, because you're going to get better at it. Okay. So that's the design pattern. So mindset, purpose, design pattern. Then I go into the data model. So essentially the data model, when I think about it and I'm going to get people that are going to comment and say, I'm an idiot, I get it. But the database, what's my database structure? What's, what's this look like? You know, how, how are my tables going to be fit together and so forth, right? So that's the, that's the thing that I look at next because ultimately that's where the information is going to go. That's kind of the endpoint where it's stored. And so I like to start there so that I have a good idea of what I'm working towards. Next is the object model. So this is really going to be, again, this goes back to the design pattern, but the object model is essentially, you know, what classes and and data model and object model, they really kind of go together in a sense because the, you know, the, the tables that you have are likely going to be represent They're going to store the data for the different objects. So as an example, if you're creating a content management system, one of your objects would be 
most likely a post, right? Well, that post is going to get stored in your database. You're going to have a post table with a, uh, you know, a bunch of different records for all of the individual posts, and you're going to have different fields that store different data about that post. Okay, so the two work together, but the object model is more the code side of it, the different classes and so forth that you're going to use to interact with your database and also to interact with your front-end UI, okay? So I do the data model first, then the object model, and sometimes those are kind of interwoven a little bit. Again, like I said, I, I tweak a little bit. It just kind of depends. And then you get into the views, the UI, right? How How is the user going to interact with this? And that should flow through your object model into your into your data and back, okay? So that's that's kind of the way that I, that I approach it. And then from there... That's when, once you have the minimum viable product in that sense, then you can start looking at upgrades, adding more objects, adding more data to each object, allowing different actions. You know, part of the object model is not just, it's the actions that happen, right? So creating a post, editing a post, deleting a post, moving a post into a category, et cetera. Those are all different actions. So, and they interact with the database in order to accomplish that, but uh, again, those that's what this all kind of intermingles. But if you separate it out and how you build it, then it kind of gives you a little bit of a better idea of, of how to approach it. So mindset, purpose, design pattern, data model, object model, views, and then that's when I get into upgrades. That's when you can get into the bells and whistles. That's when you can get into scaling and making it better and so forth. And really when you do that, you kind of follow fall back and, and go back into the same pattern for each new kind of piece of functionality that you're going to add. All right, so this segment's getting a little long, so I want to wrap it up there, but hopefully that gives you some ideas. I'm not saying you have to follow this exactly how I do, but it should give you some ideas uh, about how you can can start to construct your own process. And most importantly, what I want to get across is the importance of having a process. If you don't have a process, then all of this can get really muddled and confusing, and I've been there. That's what I did for a, a long time. Uh, until I got really frustrated with it. And then I, I learned how to kind of create a process for how I build my applications. All right, coming up next, we're getting into tax tips for freelancers. You want to stick around for that. I've got some uh, uh, lessons learned the hard way stories I want to tell you about about that and some things that you can do to make sure that you are compliant with all of the, the necessary tax regula- regulations and so forth. You're listening to John Morris Show, johnmorrisonline.com. So I just realized something. I'm always harping on how important creating blog content is for getting new clients to your web design business. But what if you don't have a blog and you're not sure how to get one set up? Well, don't worry because I've just created a new tutorial on how to start your blog in less than 15 minutes. So in less than 15 minutes from now, you could have your blog up and running and creating content that's going to help you attract new clients for your web design business. In order to take this tutorial, you want to head on over to johnsbloggingtutorial.com. Again, that's johnsbloggingtutorial.com. Head on over and let's get your blog started today. Welcome back to the John Morris Show on johnmorrisonline.com. So it's tax season here in the United States, and so I've been 
kind of gathering everything up and getting everything ready to do my taxes and thought I would maybe give a little bit of words of advice of things I've learned about doing your taxes as a freelancer. Now, I can speak from experience that this is especially important because I've learned the hard way what can happen if you're you don't stay on top of this and it was actually I think it was 2 years ago maybe 3 years ago I wasn't paying attention and wasn't doing the things that I should have been doing and I ended up owing I think it was around $1400 in back taxes now that's not one of necessarily the big horror stories you might hear you could probably find people who've had a much worse situation than that but $1400 is $1400 and for me at the time it wasn't something that I was just gonna you know I I was gonna be able to easily come up with and I ended up having to do payments and I ended up paying on those for gosh seemed like a year at least maybe even longer that I was paying on these back taxes um so it it was very frustrating and it was really came down to me just not doing what I was supposed to be doing and you know the last thing that you want obviously is to owe back taxes or even worse to have someone audit you Okay, and I don't know, this is, I'm talking in relation to the United States, where you live, I don't know exactly how it works. These things may not be as much of a concern, or they may be more of a concern. It may be easier, it may be harder, etc. But I think most countries collect taxes, and they're going to want you to make sure and pay them their 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 taxes. So, again, the last thing you want is to have to owe or or, or get audited. Or even worse, I think for me, is just having it hanging over your head of every year you're not sure if you're doing the right thing. And so it's definitely something that you want to make sure that you get handled. Now, let me preface my advice by saying, I think I have to say this, but I'm going to regardless. I'm not a tax professional. I'm not a CPA. I'm not any of those things. So... Basically, don't listen to anything I say, right? This is me just talking uh, before you do anything with your taxes. Obviously, you want to consult a professional, especially in your jurisdiction, which, uh, you know, if you're not in the United States, I would assume is, you know, obviously different than where I'm at. So with that out of the way, the first piece of advice or the first thing I'll say that I do is separating my business from my personal. And so I formed an actual LLC and I didn't, this is one of the things I didn't do when I ended up owing those back taxes is I had it all just kind of intermingled. And so after that, I formally started an LLC. My LLC has its own bank account. You know, it has its own tax ID number. You know, all of my accounts online through all of the different services, like say, for example, AWeber and my hosting and all of the different services that I use are through my business and they use my business account to pay for them. Um, and so it's, it, it, 
and I don't use my business account for anything personal. Um, my wife and I are both employees of the LLC. You know, we issue ourselves a paycheck and then that goes into our personal accounts to be used however we want personally. But that's counted as a wage from my business. So um, you just want to keep them as separate as you possibly can. And so I use an LLC to do that. It helps with the liability. And really for me, it's just easier. It's more organized and easier to understand. So I know everything that comes out of my business account is for my business. I pay my wages out of there. And it, it's just really simple because it's completely wholly separate. They're, they're not interrelated at all. So that's the first thing that I recommend. Different, a separate business account, you know, an actual formed entity, all, run all of your, your, anything that you pay for, for your business. And you have to, there's a lot of people that get this mixed up where, well, I can finagle it to make it, you know, have my business pay for it. Why do that? That's such a risk to me. Like everything that I buy with my business account is for my business specifically i just don't understand uh, the the why you would do that and finagle and risk that just seems like such a big risk to me so i recommend or what i do is keeping them wholly separate and using it only for things that really truly are for your business i'm pretty sure that's the law anyway next once you have them wholly separate use software for tracking now i use something called wave accounting i think a lot of people use like QuickBooks and, and all the other ones that are out there. But the nice thing about an accounting platform, it, there's a learning curve. It takes a little bit to understand how everything, the things that you got to do, how to do them. But once you get it set up, it does a lot of the hard work for you and it handles a lot of the confusing stuff. You know, at the end of the year, I get an income statement and it, it has everything right there. You know, now obviously I have my bank account tied to it, so it goes through. You know, I get the transactions from my business bank account and I go through and I categorize them each month. I do this every, each month. At the end of the month, I go through and categorize everything, make verify all the purchases. You know, if there's anything in there that off or whatever, I figure it all out. I do all that each month. And if you do that, at the end of the year, what you get is an income statement. It has your income. It has your expenses. It has your expenses by category. And so when you go to do your return and put that information into your actual tax return, it's simple. It's easy. It's all right there. You don't have to go try and find receipts. I do the receipts throughout the year. You can upload receipts there. I do those throughout the year as I make purchases and so forth. And it's dead simple for me to handle. And this year, you know, and I each year I've gotten a little better at this, but this year it literally took me about five minutes to enter all of my business stuff into my return. My personal stuff was way more complicated than my business stuff because my personal stuff you have to get you know you have to get mortgage statements and I have student loans so student loan interest statements and you have to get all this different stuff from all of these different people with my business it's all in one spot I have an income statement that's it that's it's all there there's nothing you know there's nothing crazy it's all one document and I can just enter it all so it's really 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 easy it took me all of about five minutes to do so use software Rely on your software. That's what it's there for. Next thing, track all the income that you get and get 1099s. Again, this is specific to the United States, but 
The government's going to find if you miss something. And again, I can speak from experience on this. This happened to me twice where, and it wasn't big, huge dollar amounts. So there wasn't some big nasty fine with it, but it is, you get a, a letter from the IRS a year later. I think one was even two years later and they said, oh, hey, by the way, we, you know, they were digitizing a lot of their records. And as a result of that, they were able to run queries and so forth. And they're like, hey, we found that this company says that, um, you know, they paid you this. I think it was PayPal. This PayPal stuff is what it was. They paid you this, you know, this amount of money or whatever. They issued a 1099 for this amount of money or whatever. And you didn't claim it on your taxes. That's X number of dollars in income you didn't claim. So here's, you know, here's what you owe, what you should have paid back then, etc. Right? It's happened to me twice. And it's just things I forgot. It wasn't malicious. It wasn't something I intended to do. But it's just, you know, there, there's a lot of, at that time, this was before I started doing all this stuff. There were things that, you know, I just was missing. And so... You want to make sure that you track it all and get the 1099s if possible. The companies aren't always required to issue you a 1099, in which case, you know, then you want to, you're going to have to go in and like, I had to do this with PayPal a couple of years ago, go in and actually export the transactions as a spreadsheet and so forth so I could figure it all out. Um, But you got to do that because they'll find it and they'll come back and it sucks for them to come back a couple of years later and say, oh, by the way, you owe us this much money. So one of those unexpected expenses that you just don't like to deal with. So track all your income. Also track all your expenses because your expenses are a big part of what lowers your tax burden. And it's, you know, it's not avoiding taxes. It's just legitimate. You know, you, you, you have expenses to run your business. And so you want to make sure and track those and make sure you get credit for the actual expenses you have and you're not ta- paying more tax than you should be. Now, I mentioned this earlier, you want to make sure they're really business expenses. I don't like the whole thing of, no, oh, I can finagle. Nah. Make sure it's really for your business. And if you can get software, which most of the software that's out there does this, that's connected to your bank account, it makes it really, really easy. You just run everything through your business bank account. It's tied into your software. And then each month you sit down and you go through and you categorize it properly, right? So they have different categories you can put different things into. For example, there's online, there's computer hosting, there's computer software, um, there's computer hardware, etc. So you can take each transaction and put it into the the right category. Um, Make sure, you know, mine has, again, you verify all the transactions so that, you know, okay, yes, this was, I categorized it. This was a, I know this transaction, verify, etc. And you can go through there uh, and do all of that. Um, and so it, it makes it really, really simple if it's connected to your bank account. The other thing is, and again, you'll have to check the laws where you live and so forth, but, you know, pay yourself. Don't just take money out of the business business account, right? Actually just pay yourself and pull the taxes out at that time in each month or each quarter, however you're supposed to do it, pay those payments to wherever you're supposed to pay them. You know, here you have IRS and then you have state taxes. Then you have, you actually have um, unemployment for federal and unemployment for state that you have to pay. And a lot of times those are different. They're all different websites. I think you have three or four different websites I have to go to. But take a day each month, do all your verifications, do all your payroll, 
uh, pay yourself and then take out those taxes and and send them. So at the end of the year, because if you don't, at the end of the year, what's going to happen is they're going to say, well, you should have been paying us all this. Now this is what you owe you owe and you owe a big chunk at the end of the year. And it can be really, really frustrating. So I pay myself and my wife works for the company as well and you tax it, you pay those taxes. So at the end of the year, you don't have this big burden that you then have to owe. Uh, I kind of already went into this, but make sure you make your quarterly payments. Now, these are different from employee taxes, right? You have to tax, your employees get taxed on their income. So that's an income tax, but you also have your business kind of corporate tax that if you have a profit at the end of the year, you get taxed on that profit. And so if you know that you're going to have a profit at the end of the year, then, you know, kind of try to figure out what that's going to be and make your quarterly payments. Now, you should know at the end of a quarter what your profit was for that quarter. So if you if you if it's going to stay that way and you're going to continue to show profits each quarter and there's not going to be any big expense that's going to kind of eat it all up at the end of the year, then make sure and make those those quarterly payments so that again at the end of the year you don't have a big tax burden that you owe. All right, the, so and then the last piece of advice is look this is all really complicated so if you need to get help don't be afraid to get help. There's actually people out there, and I didn't know this until really just this year, who aren't necessarily CPAs, but they're they're people who are accounting majors, people who have their masters or whatever in accounting, and they won't do your taxes for you. But if you have some software or whatever, they can actually come in and look at your software. They can look at all your finances if it's not on software or whatever, and they can show you how to set it up and do it and how to run your software. So that when it comes tax time, you have like what I have, a little income statement and you're good to go. And you could then take that to your tax, the person doing your taxes, or if you're doing it yourself, you can, and it's all set to go. And they can even come in if you don't want to do all of the transaction stuff and categorizing and payroll at the end of the month, you can pay them to come in and do it. And they're much, much cheaper than someone who is a CPA and a tax accountant and so forth. So. That's another option. Get whatever it is, get that help if you need it, because it's better to get the help than run into an issue at the end of the year. All right. So that was a super fun topic, I know, but it's one of those things that's really important to make sure that you get handled. All right. Coming up in our next segment, we're going to get into our Q&A. We're going to be answering questions that you have asked me, whether it's on YouTube, Twitter, email, etc. I'm going to dive in and answer those questions. You're listening to John Morris Show on johnmorrisonline.com. A quick question for you. Are you running a WordPress site? If so, then I want to recommend to you the premium WordPress hosting service, WP Engine. Now, what makes WP Engine different than a lot of web hosts out there is that it's designed specifically for WordPress with advanced caching and security implementation to keep your WordPress website up and running and running as fast as possible. And we all know how important speed is on the web these days. So if you're running WordPress and you don't have WP Engine yet, be sure to give it a look. You can get their best price at johnmorrisonline.com slash WP Engine. Again, that's johnmorrisonline.com slash WP Engine, all one word. Check them out. You're going to love your WordPress hosting. Welcome back to the John Morris Show, johnmorrisonline.com. Now we're going to dive into our weekly 
Q&A. So these are questions that I've received over on YouTube, Twitter, via email, etc. If you have a question for me, you can ask me over on YouTube, johnmorrisonline.com slash YouTube. You could tweet me on Twitter at JP Morris, or you can send me send me an email at John Morris or at John at JohnMorrisonline.com. All right, let's dive into these questions. So the first one is it says, I'm confused. Why do you have all the HTML elements in a demo-form.php file? Aren't HTML elements supposed to go in demo.html? So the answer to this is that you can use HTML inside PHP files. In fact, most of the time when you build stuff, if you're using PHP, that's what you're going to do. The reason that is is because, again, you can put HTML elements in a .php file, but you can't put PHP elements in a .html file because the server looks at that extension to decide whether or not it's something it needs to send to the PHP processor or not. So if you put demo.html, it's not going to send it to the server to process the PHP. And so that if there's any PHP in that file, it's never going to get processed. Whereas if you have HTML on a PHP file, it's going to send it to the PHP processor if there's no PHP in it, then it'll just come back and it'll just have the HTML that you have in there and that'll get sent to the client. So the reason I pretty much build everything that I build as .php files because most of the time I'm going to end up putting PHP in a file at some point and I know that so I just set it up for that. Now, technically you could have a demo.html file that just has the form and you could send that to a PHP file that just has the PHP in it, you can certainly do that. But, you know, if you want to display any of the information from the form that was submitted back on the form, you're not going to be able to do that with an HTML file. Uh, if at some point down the line you want to add PHP to that demo.html file, you're going to have to change its extension to .php and then you have to upgrade all your links and so forth. So it's just easier to build it as a .php file from the start. So that's why. Next question is in regards to a tutorial that I did. I believe this is my login tutorial, which by the way is fairly old. It's much older than the YouTube date that's on there, but there's still a lot of value in there. But there are some things that if I could go back and redo that tutorial, that I would change. But that said, it is what it is. But it says, when I go to the login.php page, it shows four notices saying that there are undefined indexes on line 3, 24, 29, and 40 on login.php. So this is because, I'm going off the top of my head here again, but this is because we're we're accessing get parameters, I believe. And those parameters aren't always set. So if they're not set and you're you know you're you're using them in your code or you're doing some sort of check based off of them and they're not set, you're going to get an undefined index notice. Now, there's a couple things here. One, it's a notice. It's not a fatal error. It's not even a warning. 
It's just a notice. So it's not going to stop the page from processing. And most sites, most people on a production server, they suppress, really, they suppress notices for sure. A lot of times it's suppressed warnings. About the only thing that's going to trigger an actual error showing up is some sort of fatal error. So it's not necessarily life, you know, it's not necessarily a deal breaker that these notices are showing up. However, yes, you should, and I should have, done the right thing and done the proper checks so that those notices don't even show up. So most of the time, the easiest way to do that is to just run is set on the get variables or any variable that you're going to use that you're not sure whether you're going to have it or not. So just do if is set, get, and the parameter. And then if it is set, then you set the variable, you know, whatever the variable is, to the value of get and the parameter. So just run, basically you wrap it in an is set check. And that'll check if it's set, then it'll set that variable to the value of that get parameter. That's the way that, you know, you should do it. You can also use empty, um, you know, to check to see if it's empty or not. And then that way, you know, you know, if it, it gives you a little more context for, because the, the, the parameter could be set, but not have any value in it. And it's still not going to work for your application. So those particular checks, uh, if I again, if I remember correctly, I was actually checking to see which one of them was set and then doing different things based off which one was set. And then if none of them were set, I was doing something else. So I was, I was doing the checks, but I wasn't wrapping them in is set before uh, I did all that. So it was th it throws these index errors. So that's how you can kind of deal with it. Next question is, hey, thanks for the video. Pretty helpful. This is kind of a long one. Uh, it says, pretty helpful and has got me thinking. I'm currently in my final year of university and have only recently discovered coding and web development. I'm in a bit of a predicament trying to figure out where I want to go career-wise. I've been looking into doing a coding boot camp, but it still comes down to whether I truly do have a passion for coding as it's still quite new for me, so I'm still in the honeymoon stage. But as a career, I like the idea of it all and would like to think I could make it work even if I don't have a true passion in it, as I don't really have a true passion for anything. Do you have any pointers? And look, I, I don't disagree with you. I mean, as far as jobs you hate go, it's not a bad one. And I know plenty of people who work at jobs they hate and get themselves to do it. Now, that's not necessarily something I recommend. But those people, you know, they're they're more concerned with the result of the job than they are the job itself. And I've come to realize it's really easy to be kind of down on those people. And I'm a person who was absolutely guilty of that in the past. And I've come to realize that, mainly because I'm married to one, that it's okay that we all have kind of different things that matter to us. And we're not all going to be the same. And not everybody's going to be like me where I can't work a job. I, I I literally, like, I physically can't do it. 
I'm there for like an hour. Well, sorry, an hour, but I'm there for a short amount of time. And I literally go crazy. It drives me nuts. And I can't do it. So for me, it's just, it's almost not an option. I've tried. I've tried them plenty of times. And it just doesn't work. There are other people who, you know, my mother was this way. My wife is this way. They can do it. Because they find value in the people they work with. And they find value in the result of having the job. And they like they like just having a job. They feel accomplished and so forth. And that's all fine. So we're all different. So it's okay if you think that way. But you, the thing is, is you have to know yourself. So if you know that you can't work a job that you don't have a true passion for, then it's kind of pointless, isn't it? Because you know it's not going to go anywhere. You're just going to waste a bunch of time. But if you know that you can do that, then there's no problem with that. I don't, I don't, it's fine. Now it'd be better if you could find something that you really truly enjoyed. But I found that oftentimes the people who are okay with working a job that they don't necessarily love they don't, you know, they don't know what their passion is. They don't know it. Uh, and so it's like, okay, what am I supposed to do? Like sit on the side of the road and think about it till I figure it out for the next 20 years. My advice to you would be, if you think it could be something that you're passionate about, but you're not sure yet, then just, yeah, get into it. Go for it. You're going to know at some point. And look, it's a good skill to have. And it's a good skill that, hey, you know, maybe it's not your passion, but maybe something happens w- with my other career that is my passion and I'm having a h- hard financial time. I have this other skill set that I know I can rely on, that I can fall back on um, and, you know, make some money here and there if I need to. So that, uh, yeah, I would say if you're not sure, then absolutely go for it. And find out, because that's really the only way you're going to know. However, this is the warning that I would give you. If you know you're someone who can't make yourself work a job that you hate, the moment, if this happens, the moment you realize you're not passionate about it, that this isn't something that you're meant to do long term, move on. And it's going to be really hard to do. Now, I'm not saying quit your job or quit what you're doing right then and there. But you need to switch gears in your mind very, very quickly. And I've been through this because when I was young, I was 20 years old. I got hired as a salesperson and people always laugh, but at a shoe store, because I talk about it seriously, because it really was pretty serious, but I got hired at a shoe store and was, it was, it was not the foot locker type thing that you think of. We were paid on commission. It was very, we had a sales process. We did tons of sales training. It was a very uh, high caliber sales organization. And our product just happened to be shoes. But I was really, really good at it to the point that I went from part-time, one of the top part-time people to an assistant manager, one of the top assistant managers, to getting hired as a manager 
to manage my own store, which was, that was the thing in this company. It was a big deal. That was where, you know, you went to a, you know, near or above six figure income running a small shoe store in a mall. So, uh, it was a big deal for me and I got promoted to do that. And my, you know, I, I was at my first store for about two months and I killed it. I was breaking records for that store. The store had been down and it was totally, had totally transformed it. Numbers were great, etc. But I was also working about 90 hours a week because that's what you do in one of these stores and working that much in it. I found out that I, I don't love doing this. I'm really, really good at it, but I don't love it. And it just, it kind of, it hit me like a ton of bricks and I, it was just immediate. I couldn't do it anymore. And I put in my resignation and I was gone in like two weeks. So I have done that before and don't get me wrong. That wasn't a good situation. I was married at the time. I had a uh, a kid. It wasn't like a good situation to be in, but I knew, I knew myself. And when I came to that moment where I realized I can't do this anymore, I had to move on. I was rough for a while there, but I got it figured out and eventually uh, stumbled onto coding and web development and, and really haven't looked back since. And it was the smartest decision I ever made because I would have been miserable had I forced myself to stay doing that. So again, if you know you can't make yourself do something that you hate doing or don't like doing, the moment you realize coding isn't that for you, if that happens, move on. You got to move on because it's just never going to work out. All right, that'll wrap it up for the show this week. Hopefully you enjoyed it. Appreciate you giving me some of your time this week. Now, if you haven't yet, be sure to subscribe to the show. You can do that on iTunes, johnmorrisonline.com slash iTunes. If you're on an Android device, johnmorrisonline.com slash SoundCloud, or of course on YouTube, johnmorrisonline.com slash YouTube. If you like the show, be sure to like it so that I know that you like this format and this this information. If you know somebody would benefit it, whether it's an individual or a, a Facebook group or a Google Plus community, if you wouldn't mind sharing it with them, I'd greatly appreciate that. If you have questions that you'd like me to answer on the show, you can either email me at john at johnmorrisonline.com. You can send me a message or tweet me on Twitter at JP Morris or leave me a comment over on YouTube. All right, that'll wrap it up for this week. Thanks again for listening. We'll see you next week. Hey, everybody. Here's a quick one for you. We all know how important creating blog content is to attract new clients to your web design business. But oftentimes, those first few members of your audience can be difficult to get. Well, I want to help try and get you over that hump and help you get your first few followers. Now, I have an audience of over 20,000 YouTube subscribers, email list subscribers, and roughly 30,000 visitors to my website each and every month. And I'd have no problem promoting your website to that audience and helping you get those first few visitors. Now, to get the details on this, you'll have to head on over to johnmorrisonline.com slash publicity, but you'll need to do it before you actually start your blog. 
So head on over to johnmorrisonline.com slash publicity and let me help you get those first few visitors and those first few members of your audience.